Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and today we're going to journey beyond reason and logic into some other modes of gaining knowledge and understanding. So the essence of the previous episode was really twofold. Firstly, that we need to cultivate and use ordinary logic or reason rather a lot in spiritual life. And secondly, that whilst we're doing that, we also need to find out where the limits of reason and logic are and discern how to go beyond them. And this episode is really about this beyond. What are these mysterious things that enable us to know or see or apprehend or understand or at least suspect true knowledge once we have left the gates of reason? I think philosophers have mainly done a poor job of examining this, probably because they're usually too under the sway of the power of reason. So I'm going to talk about three different epistemic tools which are not logic. And these are intuition, shabda pramana and prajna. Now, if you've never heard of the latter two, no worries, there's probably many people who haven't. These are Sanskrit terms, and this means we're going to be borrowing into the Indian traditions of epistemology. But let us start with intuition, which I think is something which is something that I think we're all probably quite familiar with. So intuition usually has a sense of something like gut feel. Maybe it's quite close to instinct or emotional intelligence. Sometimes it seems to refer to something like clairvoyance, and often it's referred to as our sixth sense. Now generally, philosophers have barely even bothered to examine intuition. And there's kind of a notable exception here uh, with the early 20th century French philosopher Henri Bergson, who, as a footnote, was actually on par with Albert Einstein for fame and influence. But, you know, a century or so on, his star has most definitely faded, whilst Einstein's has become virtually immortalised. So I think we could say that there is a kind of unsaid consensus that amongst most philosophers that intuition either doesn't exist, or if it does, it's not the kind of thing fit to be in the domain of philosophy. So maybe it's for psychologists, if we're talking about that emotional intelligence sense of the term, or for people well outside the mainstream, people like mediums and astrologists and so forth, if we're talking about that more esoteric sense of the term. But actually intuition has another meaning, and one which plays a really important role in every discipline of philosophy, and I think a lot of the sciences too. And this is really the meaning of one starting notions about a given problem. You might say you're starting assumptions about something before you probe or look more deeply into it. So actually, philosophy is produced by examining one's starting intuitions about something and then probing more and more deeply and precisely to see if those intuitions are in fact correct or justified or true. So you definitely need other epistemic tools to do that probing 
But you need intuition to get started. So in this sense, you might say intuition is like the raw vegetables which you make a meal out of, but it's really reason and other epistemic tools that does the cooking of those vegetables. It turns the vegetables into an edible meal. And one of the things I realized as a kind of practicing philosopher is that you can actually cook those raw vegetables in any number of ways, which is to say you can make good arguments in lots of different directions. And often it's one starting intuitions that do the shaping in this direction and not that direction. So in this sense, intuitions might be much more important than we might otherwise assume. Now, good philosophy can actually make you overturn your starting intuitions about something. So that is, the power of a really good argument can make you change your starting viewpoint. And I think you know, this remains an excellent reason to engage with philosophical or critical thinking, to be a bit of a philosopher yourself in the sense of testing your own assumptions and then questioning your, your values or your starting intuitions. But there's also a lot of bad philosophy around which really simply confirms one's starting intuitions. And this is nothing more than a process of dogma reinforced with logic and conceptuality. And you know, this is really the problem of confirmation bias, which we've discussed already quite a lot through the series. Okay, so that's intuition in the legitimate philosophical sense. And I think it's very much in line with all of the stuff we've been talking about so far in the series. You know, examining different traditions, reading different texts, different, um, investigating different teachers and practices, all with due diligence, being able to sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of your own thinking and your own engagement with external knowledge and these sorts of matters. But what about this more elusive, instinctive, gut-feel, quasi-clairvoyant sense of intuition? Can we actually speak about this? Does it exist? What do we know about it? Well, these days I think there's a reasonable amount of material on emotional intelligence. I can't say that I've read very much of it, but I take it as a given that it is completely necessary to develop emotional intelligence to become a mature and well-rounded human being. As for clairvoyance, well, I personally don't know about mediums and the like. I'm prepared to be agnostic about that, maybe with a fairly healthy dose of skepticism. Certainly in many of the Dharmic traditions, clairvoyance is considered to be a relatively mundane city. City is a word for something like a special power that you can develop if you're very good at meditation. And I do actually believe that this is possible. I'm pretty sure I've met people with this ability. But, you know, it is comparatively rare, so I don't think we need to really speak about this form of clairvoyance. But there's a different sense of intuition that I do want to briefly examine, which I think is not rare at all, and which does not need very much development, and which I think a lot of us utilise maybe a bit unreflexively a lot of the time. And it's this aspect of our minds that is a mixture of curiosity and desire and wonderment which induces us into terrain beyond our everyday mundane habits. So it leads us into new horizons to taste new things, to encounter new ideas and to put them into practice. So for those of us who still go into bookstores or maybe libraries, 
I'm really talking about that aspect of mind that causes you to shuffle along the shelves in a kind of anticipation and then to almost smell something good. And this causes you to pick up one particular book and leaf through its pages and maybe take it home with you. So that's what I mean by intuition, that mysterious sense of in inquisitiveness that induces you into an engagement with something new and different. Now, once you have that book, it really is those other elements of mind or other tools of knowing that come into play. You might say more analytical modes, more rationalistic and logical modes. But that sense of shuffling through the shelves and prodding into something new, well, that's the sense of intuition that I'm really talking about. And I think it is indispensable for spiritual life. Curiosity, desire and wonderment all coalescing into a mere moment or three that prods you into something new. And the point here seems to be this, that just like the, in the philosophical or scientific sense of it, intuition is a thing which enables you to be propelled into deeper discoveries and insights. It has almost a primordial quality to it. And I think this is maybe where things get rather interesting. Because this quality seems to be in itself a kind of knowing. You know, a little flash of knowing. It's no more than a flash. And maybe the well-worn metaphor of the light bulb being illuminated when you have an idea is quite apt here. It's a moment of illumination. A bit of a flash of something. And I don't think we can really flesh that out too schematically because it slips away the very moment you try to describe it. But we probably do need to acknowledge its presence. And the point would be that this aspect of our mind is actually manifest. It is there. And we use it rather a lot. And more than that, it's very precious, very important to gaining good knowledge. And it is ultimately a very different kind of character to both ordinary and more radical forms of logic. Nonetheless, I think it's quite possible to overestimate the power and efficacy of intuition. And it seems to me, at least anecdotally, that that maybe is one of the main problems with New Age approaches to spiritual life, which is a kind of rejection of, of reason for a more intuitive approach. And I think if you're just relying on intuition, that's going to be a problem. Intuition might help you find the right book or the right new idea. It might prod you into some new and different thing. But it is reason and critical analysis that's going to help you actually understand it. And this is actually far more important than the prod. Okay, so actually I would like to talk more about intuition, but I'm not sure it's really possible. Let's move on to Shabda Pramana. As I mentioned, this is a Sanskrit term. Basically translates to verbal testimony as a valid means of knowing. Now, in a lot of the Indian traditions of epistemology, it's considered one of the valid tools of knowledge alongside perception and reason. So the classic example of those two, of perception and reason, is smoke and fire. So if I'm very close to a fire, 
I can actually perceive it with my eyes and maybe my ears and my skin and my nose. So that is, through my senses, I can sense the fire and I can then assert on that basis, there is a fire. Or, I know that there is a fire. So that is the validity of sense perception as a valid means of knowing. And of course, it does get rather a lot more complex if we really examine and scrutinize the relationship between sensory impressions and claims about knowledge. But we can remain for the moment at this fairly simple level. If I am 500 meters away, I can only see the smoke from the fire, so I can't see the fire itself. But I can use reason to make the logical inference there is smoke, therefore there must be a fire. So it's really a cognitive act, not a perceptual act. Um, so it's an act of cognition, an act of thinking, an act of reasoning, but one which actually presupposes prior perception. That is, because I've seen that fires do always make smoke in the past, I can infer that if I'm seeing only smoke now that there probably is a fire. So roughly speaking, those are the two main tools of valid knowledge we can safely say that have been very, very influential both in Indian and Western epistemology. And indeed, we devoted the whole of the last episode to one of those modes, that's inference or logical reason. Shabda Pramana is an additional tool, not contrary to, but complementary to the first two. And as far as I know, it's more or less off the table in Western philosophy. Uh, certainly in modern times. It might be there a little bit in certain ways in ancient philosophy. So what does Shabda Pramana mean? Well, it really means the epistemic validity of someone else's claims about their insight into the nature of reality. So in the Indian traditions, this generally implies spiritual or yogic claims, claims of being able to see more deeply into the order of things, into the world, into the cosmos, into the nature of reality. So let's take an example. Let's take Albert Einstein, who we mentioned before. When Einstein was in the business of making claims about the nature of space, time and energy, he relied solely upon those first two epistemic tools principally mathematics, which is broadly synonymous with reason, but then also empirical or perceptual observation of the cosmos. And I think it's fair to say that he also probably had some powerful intuitions too, which may have been quite important in the development of his views and thinking. So we believe him on the basis that his mathematical physics holds, that is the maths is good, it works and has in most respects been proven, usually quite a lot later in time, through our perceptual examinations of the universe. Even if there is now rather a big contradiction with the quantum level of reality. We do not believe him just because he comes along and says, hey guys, I have insight into all of this, trust me, there is special relativity. We believed him on the basis of his mathematical physics. And then even more, with empirical observation that proved the efficacy 
of that mathematical physics. We did not believe him on the basis that he claimed special insight into the nature of reality personally, as a kind of privilege seeing or witnessing what reality is. So science generally does not include Shabda Pramana as a means of valid knowledge, at least not explicitly. And I think it's all the better for that. However, once Einstein became famous and influential, people did seek his views on a whole range of things well outside of the domain of physics. For example, on moral and existential and social and political kinds of problems. And the thought behind this is something like, well, this guy is clearly super smart, he's definitely a genius, so on that basis he may well have the kind of mind that can help us gain insights into certain things that we don't really understand. So that is a form of Shabda Pramana. If some random guy on Facebook makes a statement about, say, civilization and war, we're not likely to give it very much weight. But if someone of the caliber of Einstein does, which he did in his letter to Freud, we will, at least to a greater degree. So Shabda Pramana is really about acknowledging that there are people around who have good insights into the nature of reality and that we can, at least in part, rely on their statements as valid or good or true knowledge. And this begs two questions which are incredibly tricky. First of all, who are these people and what kind of insights do they have? Second, how are we to judge whether they actually have these insights or not? Well, who they are, in the Indian sense of the term, these are the sages, the masters, the gurus, the lamas, the yogis, the seers, the philosophers, in the ancient sense of the term. So, someone like the Buddha, or Patanjali, or the great Vedantan philosopher Shankara. We could perhaps loosen this a little and include people who seem to just have a little bit of extra insight or wisdom. It might be a grandparent, or an artist, or a scholar, or a writer, or someone of that kind of nature. What kind of insights do they have? Well, this may be highly varied, depending on what kind of tradition or cultural context such a person is in. But in one way or another, it seems to imply deeper insights into the nature of the human condition and probably some means of mastering it, or transcending it, or transforming it. So it seems to imply a kind of pragmatic or existential dimension, something which goes beyond mere theory. And then the really tricky bit, how are we to judge whether they actually have these insights or not? Well, this is rather a big problem. Let's go back to our old friend mindfulness. As we've discovered through the series, this is something taught by the Buddha. And the Buddha is someone who did explicitly claim special insight and asserted Shabda Pramana. So that is something like, take my word for it, I can see the truth of reality. Uh, albeit not in an ironclad or absolutist way, because he did always encourage his disciples to look for themselves, as opposed to taking his statements on kind of pure trust or faith. 
So the statements are like guidance for one's own looking. And that maybe is the way Shabda Pramana seems to work in the context of Indian epistemology. As we have discussed, mindfulness is also something practiced in today's world by many, many people outside of the context of traditional Buddhism. So it's a tool used not only by modern psychologists in the context of cognitive behavioral therapy, but also by GPs in the context of pain management. So Shabda Pramana plays a strong role in the case of the Buddha's statements about mindfulness, which is to say, we may be willing to believe in those statements mainly on the basis that the Buddha was in fact an awakened one. I mean, that's what he himself claimed about himself, and that's why he called himself the Buddha. That's actually the meaning of the word Buddha. So his insights have credibility, or we are willing to grant them credibility, on that basis. That's really Shabda Pramana. In the case of the psychologist or the GP, this is going to play a much weaker role, maybe no role, maybe no role at all. So if your psychologist advises you to practice mindfulness, it's likely that you are sent to this advice on the basis of their training, which in turn seems to presuppose a mixture of reason or theory and perceptual or empirical observation. So actually the whole thing is resting much more on the other two pramanas, reason and perception, and is therefore resting much more on science than the valid testimony of someone who claims special insight. Although maybe in the case of a very well-renowned psychologist, this line might be blurred a little more. So really, the point is that the person committed to spiritual life has to grapple with this in one way or another. And it amounts to a kind of question of how much or how little, if any, of Shabda Pramana one might be inclined to accept as a means of acquiring knowledge. And really, I think it's for each person to decide this on their own. It's a very difficult issue. One further point on this, though. Alongside the Buddha's statements about mindfulness, as found in the Sutta, and the psychologists and GPs and well-being type people who advise about it, there are also 21st century practitioners of mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition. And the point here is that some of them represent the actual site of Shabda Pramana, because they are the ones who might have utilized the technique in such a way as to have gained a deeper insight into the nature of things. So, the distinction here is between an idea in an ancient text which you might choose to believe on the basis that it was asserted by a great figure in human history, or a 21st century person who has adopted that idea and put it into practice, and who you may actually conduct a real discourse with. So Shabda Pramana plays a role in both of those cases, but I put it to you that it's going to be far more robust in the latter case. So I think all of this really crystallizes in the notion of a spiritual teacher. And the obvious problem with Shabda Pramana is a question of how to determine whether or not the person claiming it really has it, or is rather either deceiving themselves or intentionally deceiving others. 
And although this can be a very real and damaging problem, I think this is only a problem if one uses Shabda Pramana alone as a tool for gaining valid knowledge. If that's all you rely upon, things may work out very well for you if the person you're giving legitimacy to does indeed have great insights. But if they don't, you will inevitably be heading for disaster. So the problem is only a problem if you don't develop other tools of knowing. So as I've been saying all the way through the series, don't abandon reason. Don't abandon intellectual diligence and reading the texts and all those other tools of knowledge that I've been talking about. If you don't abandon those, there can't be a problem. There might be certain kinds of struggle, for instance, a struggle between reason and other modes of knowing, but that's okay. Struggle on these matters is probably a good sign. Right, so the very last epistemic tool that I'm going to offer for this series is also, in my opinion, the crown jewel of epistemology. And I'm going to use the Buddhist term prajna, but widen it beyond its Buddhistic context. Prajna simply means direct insight into reality. And for this reason, it's sometimes translated as wisdom. The wisdom mind that sees or knows the nature of reality. If we add up all the tools covered so far in the series, from reading the text, to hermeneutical awareness, to reason, to intuition, all of them are tools of knowledge only in so far as they actually lead us to true understanding. And what is true understanding but the mind that can discern or apprehend rightly some aspect of reality or indeed reality itself? And true understanding is not a static thing, it's dynamic. It shapes every aspect of our relationship to the world. We could say it actually is our relationship to the world. Prajna implies that all of the modes of knowledge and analysis that you cultivate and acquire become imminent in all the ways that you orient and relate to everyday things in your life, from partners to friends to work to play to children to nature to politics, etc., to everything. Prajna implies being able to see all of that very crisply, very precisely, very clearly. It's a kind of clear seeing which is an openness and also a dexterity. So it's therefore much more than merely cognition or thinking. It's more like the way that cognition coalesces with your very apprehension of the world. So here we have some kind of firm answer to the question, what lies beyond the limits of reason? It may not be anything so flowery and romantic, but the power of understanding reality is probably the most potent of all kinds of powers. And I think it's worth pointing out that spiritual life that does not intend towards its goal will be destined to be a rather cheap illusion. Prajna renders the whole affair of spiritual life to be more or less on the axiom of illusion and reality. All the tools of knowledge are there to cut through illusion and see more and more reality. And the best tool of all is that which is the seeing of reality. And this is prajna. I think very generally we could conceive of this 
in Western terms as a kind of gnosis. And maybe in the more modern context of German idealism, Verstand is also loosely approximate. And the crux of all three, of Prajna, Gnosis or Verstand, is very closely connected to what I was saying last episode about recognizing the limitations of reason and going beyond them. So let's return to Einstein for a moment. Mathematical physics and empirical observation of the cosmos has proven to be extraordinarily useful for humanity if we leave aside for a moment the production of nuclear weapons. But there is a difference between a theoretical understanding of reality and a more direct, unmediated, seeing, knowing, encountering and understanding it. So if you are a practicing scientist, it's what happens when you leave the lab, when you're on the train home, that really matters here. How you're relating to reality, rather than the theories about reality that you're constructing. And roughly speaking, I think this is really the essential difference between scientific and spiritual life. The former aims at true, or at least pragmatically useful, theoretical insights into the nature of reality, whereas the latter aims at more personal and direct apprehensions of that same reality. So the two might very usefully intertwine and inform each other. And I certainly don't think that they are mutually exclusive or oppositional. But Prajna aims to go beyond theory, beyond conceptual edifices. It is at root a phenomenology, an embodied and lived conscious experience of the way things are. So in some way or another, all of the theory, all of the analysis, all of the knowledge that you acquire through your diligent use of intuition and reason and hermeneutics and so forth, must culminate in a more direct and penetrating seeing and apprehending the nature of reality. That is a jewel of knowledge. It is a site where knowledge transforms into something more profound, more direct, more open and more unmediated. So I think now we've reached the real purpose of the philosophical tools for spiritual life which are connected with knowledge. They are all deeply connected with the task of drawing us closer to reality. But oh dear, what is that? What is reality? And there are two kinds of people who ask that kind of question. People on psychedelic drugs and philosophers. So next episode we're going to go there as members of the latter camp, not the former, into the terrain of metaphysics and ontology to find some kind of answers to this most fundamental of all questions, what is reality? So I hope you join us there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au.